One of the uh, hidden blessings of a three-month sabbatical is that we get to welcome a number of fresh faces to our pulpit. This morning we're blessed that the Reverend Jill Lind is here. Jill is the Director of Congregational Care for the Central Conference of the Evangelical Covenant Church. The Central Conference is the geographic region that our church uh, fits inside of. She has served as a short-term missionary director of outreach and associate pastor in this morning she will bring us the word from the Gospel of John. She's here this morning with her husband, Jonathan, her daughter, Hannah, and Hannah's friend. Uh, and their daughter, Sophia, is in college in Boston in her freshman year. They come here from the north side of Chicago. So let us uh, warmly welcome Pastor Jill and her family as she brings us the word this morning. really is a privilege um, to be here with you this morning. Um, as Jordan said, I, uh, my name is Jill Lind. I'm the Director of Congregational Care for the Central Conference. Um, and just to, to give you a little idea of what the Central Conference is, um, we're about 110 churches. That number fluctuates a little bit sometimes, depending on you know church plants and church closings. But we are in a five-state area, which is Illinois. Um, Indiana, Wisconsin, parts of um, Missouri, and parts of uh, Michigan. And our job in the Central Conference is to care for, support, and resource those pastors and churches. And so I bring you greetings um, from the Central Conference to you this morning. Um, we've had a great time here. We came into town yesterday. We uh, we were able to spend a little time at Purdue. Uh, we've been taking in the sights and sounds of Lafayette, and it's just been really fun. But one of the first things I want to do this morning is I want to stand up here and I want to say thank you uh, to you for your partnership with the Central Conference. Um, it's because of support from churches like you that we get to do what we do. Um, we exist for you, through you, so it makes it extra special to be here with you this morning. Another one of the reasons that I'm so excited about being here this morning is because I know what, you know, me being here helps Pastor Stacy to take his sabbatical. And I just want to take a minute to appreciate you, to applaud you, to cheer. If I didn't think it'd be a disastrous outcome, I'd do a cartwheel up here um, just to, out of joy because from, where, from my view, from the Central Conference, I know that churches that incorporate pastoral sabbaticals into their framework, they tend to be healthy healthier churches with healthier pastors. And so thank you, E.C. Lafayette, for, um, for making that a part of who you are. And, and of course, we pray for Pastor Stacey and, and Kim um, that this be a real fruitful time for them. You know, it's always a, a little intimidating coming to a church from outside of the congregation to fill the pulpit when they're in the middle of a preaching series. Um, I believe this is the fourth Sunday in the Hope of Glory series taken from uh, James Bryant Smith book, The Good and Beautiful Community. I was sent the chapter for this week. I read it. I loved it. Um, it's called The Christ-Centered Community. I hope you got a chance to read it. Um, and I've been praying over the scripture and studying the, the scripture that was read for us this morning, John 17, 20, and 21. Now, this particular part of scripture is really powerful because this is an excerpt from one of Jesus' prayers. 
And it's the longest prayer of Jesus that is found in Scripture. And and so it's like we get a little sneak peek into a really intimate conversation between Jesus and his Father. And these two verses, 20 and 21, should be of significant value to us because it's Jesus praying for us. I'm going to say that again. It's Jesus praying for us. Kind of gives me chills. You know, in the section before this, he's praying for his disciples. But here he switches and says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. And for all of the, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay, so there are some things we know about God. And we know them because the Bible tells us, right? I mean, in Genesis 1 and 2, we know that God is creator. Exodus 11, God is majestic and holy. John 1, God is light. 1 John 4, God is love. John 3, God loves us and God loves the world. Ephesians 4, God forgives and on and on and on, right? We have scriptures full of aspects of who God is. Then there are some things that we think about God. Right? Things that aren't necessarily worded in scripture, but that we kind of assume. And here's where we have to be careful, right? And and really use discernment sometimes because we can make assumptions based on our wants and desires, right? And and not really any kind of substantiated proof. And it's extremely important not to manipulate God into who we want him to be. But I am carefully confident in two areas where I make assumptions about God. First of all, I'm pretty confident that God has a sense of humor. Okay? I mean, there's no scriptural evidence that I know of, you know, with God telling jokes or pulling pranks, but, you know, making a donkey talk to get a point across, that's pretty funny. Um, and there are certainly situations that happen in life that are, that are just too rich, right, not to be orchestrated by a God with a sense of humor. And I, I think we've probably all found ourselves in those scenarios. And creation certainly points us in that direction. All you have to do is visit your local zoo. Can I have the, the, uh, the slide? Yeah, yeah, I mean, look at that guy. You know, you, you can't tell me that God didn't have a good chuckle when he, when he was creating him. He's so cute. That's the Garanook, by the way. Even the, even the name is funny. Um, but, but the other assumption that I have about God, also because I believe that nature unmistakably points us to it, is that God loves variety. I mean, God could have been, you know, he could have made one type of tree, but uh, I think I have a tree slide here too. But God made, well, not that one, but <laughs> that's okay. Pretend that's a tree. Um, but God, God made 50,000 different types of trees. And God could have made one type of flower. But God made 369,000 different types of flowers. And I think it's safe to say that a creator who refuses to make any two snowflakes alike, there we go, (laughs) um, is not only a God who likes, but relishes variety. So now let's talk about people. 
I don't have a slide for that one. I thought we could use, you know, the, the 3D example we have right around us. Humankind. Again, all sorts of variety, right? Like snowflakes, there are no two of us alike. Not only do we have outside differences, but God takes it a, a, a step further, right? He creates us with complex minds. God gives us the ability to think differently, to develop differently, to have different cultural practices, have different convictions, opinions, passions, perspectives, and abilities. And given God's ultra-obvious preference for variety, I believe God delights in our differences. Remember, God saw all that he made, and it was good. It is good and right that we are different. We are supposed to be. We were designed to be. And then Jesus prays this prayer, right? That all of them may be one as we are one. What? God designs us to be intrinsically different, but then prays for us to be unified as one? I don't know if that points back to God's sense of humor. Or maybe it's that we continually choose to limit the power of Christ in us and Christ in the world. The Christ-centered community. That's a wonderful title. But what, is that, what exactly does that mean? We know from scripture and from nature that we were meant for relational community. The very fact that we are formed and grow inside someone else's body tells us right then and there that we are made for relationality right from the get-go. Scripture, Old and New Testaments, address people groups. They address us in the context of community. The very, you know, and and, uh, Jim Bruckner, an Old Testament professor whom some of you might know, says in his book, Healthy Christian Life, that there is no healthy Christian without community. And I think sometimes we, we balk at this idea, right? I remember a long time ago, I was leading a small group in my church. And, and there was a woman who, in a moment of, you know, transparent frustration, she blurted out, you know, I could be a great Christian if it wasn't for everybody else. And we think that sometimes, right? Like, like I've got it all together. I mean, it's because of you that I keep losing my temper. And it doesn't always help that that we live in a society that that caters to and praises individualism. Even our faith tradition, I mean, we're evangelicals. It's all about my personal relationship with Christ, right? By the way, it's okay to critique your own faith tradition sometimes. In fact, I, I think it's a healthy exercise. There is no faith tradition that is perfect, um, including ours. I am a born and bred and faithful covenanter, but in no way do I think we have the corner on faith. And yes, I agree that there is a very personal aspect of faith. Uh, But the Christian faith is communal, whether we like it or not. And, And that can kind of muddy the waters sometimes, right? It can make things hard. It can make things slow. And frustrating. I mean, just think how much more efficient church meetings would be if if, if it was just me. 
we know that that's not God's design. There is no healthy Christian without community. There is no body of Christ with just one body part. There is nothing one body part can do or be for the kingdom without the rest of the body. All of the body parts, because they are different from each other, are able to work together as a whole. There is a reason that 1 Corinthians uses this illustration. We need each other with all of our differences to be the church. And community, by its very nature, assumes some sort of common ground, right? And we understand this concept. For instance, you know, a little over 23 years ago, I I did a pretty crazy thing. I married a New Englander. I I know. Um, And little did I know at that time, when you marry a man from outside of Boston, you marry every New England sports team at the same time. You know? Um, You know, we've lived in the Chicagoland area for over 23 years, and still to this day, all it takes is, you know, we'll be walking in the park, or or we'll be at the grocery store, and all it takes is for somebody to walk by wearing, you know, a a Patriots t-shirt, or or a Red Sox hat, now even the Buccaneers, I mean, don't even get me started on the whole John Brady effect, Tom Brady, you know, tomato, tomato, Um, but it's real, Um, but all it takes is, is for somebody like to walk by wearing something like that, and I can see like his shoulders relax, you know, and he'll get a, a playful grin on his face, and you get one of these, and, and pretty soon a conversation will ensue, and all, he's got a new friend. You know, and I'm standing there like, we don't even know this guy. No, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm comfortable for him coming over for dinner just because he's wearing a Celtics jersey, you know? But, but we find this trusted ground, and, and then all of a sudden it seems like the differences kind of disappear. I mean, we, we choose that, right? And, and sometimes we even choose to let those differences be points of interest. You know, and I make fun of my husband, but I, I'm just as guilty. You put me in a room with another Minnesotan, instant trust. I, I mean, come on, somebody who understands the concept of hot dish and that it's gray duck rather than, you know, or it's duck duck gray duck rather than duck duck goose like the rest of the world seems to think it is. I mean, how bad can they be? Okay, so, so we know that we are meant for community. And we know that community assumes some kind of common ground. So what is Christ-centered community? You know, I meet with a couple of cohorts of pastors, and, and we had a, one of these cohorts had a meeting the other night, and the concept of a Christ-centered community was brought up, and I didn't even bring it up, even though I, I was working on this message, but you better, you, you better believe that I made full, uh, I, I took full advantage of that opportunity, and so I asked them, what do you think are the components of a Christ-centered community? And one of them said right away, I don't know. But isn't it the hard work of the church to figure it out? And we keep passing it by. And another one said, I think in Galatians 3.28, when Paul said there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, that that was not the lived reality. That that was the reality that Christ created that we need to live into. And it was a stretch back then, and it certainly is a stretch today. 
And I think that is exactly why Jesus, in his prayer in the book of John that we just read, intercedes on our behalf. He prayed that prayer for the believer back then and for us now because he knew Christian unity was not some easy, flowery ideal. He knew that this was the hard, painstaking work of the church. What do I think are the components of, of, and the, the common shared ground of a Christ-centered community? It's a community who is, do, is willing to do the hard work of living into the components of Christ. It's the community who is willing to love like Christ. It's the community who's willing to speak the truth in love and listen with humility. It is the community that is willing to sacrifice and forgive others. All of which Christ made abundantly clear and possible when he bled and died on the cross. The cross of Christ not only gave eternal life, it gave us the ability to love one another as Christ loves us. The blood of Christ was not just shed for our forgiveness, it was also so that we can forgive others. And in case we are confused about the kind of love we are to have for one another, we have plenty of scripture to set us straight. Besides Christ literally laying down his life for the sake of others, I'd say that's a pretty good example. Um, but there are others. Luke 6.32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And I'm going to skip to the hard part here. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children. Note that plural language there. Children of the Most High. That's the hard work of a Christ-centered community. Christ-centered community is characterized by the kind of love that is hard to give. And I think when it says love your enemies, you know, we tend to think of like the tyrants and the dictators and the monsters of the world, when honestly I think this is talking more about the people sitting across the pew from us. You know, I have a, a, a secret that I have let people in on before, and, and that is in my daily prayer journal, I have a category for, for enemies, um, yeah, and any, the, the names that go in my enemy category is anyone that I have unsettled feelings about. Now, they may uh, not have unsettled, they may not even know I have unsettled feelings about them. They may or may not have unsettled feelings about me. You know, I usually assume that they do, because a lot of times, you know, we, we, we build these fantasy scenarios in our mind that are usually based more in our own, you know, um, you know, in our own stuff rather than in reality, uh, our insecurities and such. Um, but it doesn't matter. If I have any kind of unsettled feelings about somebody, they go in my enemy category. I know that sounds harsh, right? But, but what happens then is that I pray over these names. And hear this, I do not pray that God change them. I do not pray that, you know, they see the light and, and, and finally understand that I'm right and they're wrong. No, no, no. That's, that's not the kind of prayer I just pray for him. I just lift him up to God. And do you know, this has become one of my favorite categories in, in my prayer journal because of what God can do. It, it's amazing the things that have happened 
with the people in this category. I will get texts out of the blue. I've gotten people knock on my door. you, You know, what I've seen is that a name usually does not stay in there for long because God will do something. And usually what God does is he changes me. He changes my heart. Who are your enemies? And how do you love them? You know, and I know you've talked about love already a lot in this series, so so I'm actually going to focus on some of the aspects of Christ-centered love. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's it's what I think are some of the big ones. And the first one is truth. Ephesians 4.15 says that we are to speak the truth in love so that we can grow and become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, and that is Christ. You know, for some of us, we have no problem speaking the truth, do we? But it's the in love part that that can escape us sometimes. Well, I'm going to tell you that truth spoken without love is not spoken in Christ. And sometimes I think truth not spoken without love is not in Christ either. And I would add that we listen with humility. If you are not listening with humility without, you know, building your own response or thinking about what you're going to say next because that's really what's important, it's not Christ-centered. And yes, speaking the truth in love and listening with humility is a stretch. It's a stretch that takes courage and time and patience. The next aspect of Christ-centered love, and these are all kind of shallow dives here I'm doing. Um, The next aspect of of Christ-centered love I want to talk about is sacrifice. Now there's a word, right? Who wants to talk about sacrifice? Not me, because I know enough about that word to know that it means I have to give up something of myself. Ouch. And Christ-centered sacrifice takes it a step further because the Christ kind of sacrifice is one that doesn't hold anything back. Philippians 2, 6, and 7, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant. He emptied himself to the point of death. And I want to focus on the empty here, meaning there wasn't anything left. No element of expectation that we often cling to when we offer a sacrifice, right? The idea that I did this for you. I worked three jobs so that you could go to college. You better be making something of yourself. Or I did two tours of duty in Afghanistan and you can't even put your hand on on your heart for the national anthem. Or I spent all Saturday cleaning the church kitchen And I didn't see my name in the bulletin on Sunday. And I understand all those scenarios. I'm not downplaying any one of those sacrifices. But if in our sacrifice we are holding on to any kind of expectation or condition, it is not Christ-centered. And it's true that every breath we take should be full of gratitude for what Christ did for us on the cross. But that's not why he did it. His act of sacrifice had nothing to do with conditions or expectations. He, being fully human, emptied himself of all of those human tendencies and did what he did out of pure, unconditional love. 
Yes, Christ-centered sacrifice is a stretch, painful one. What are you hanging on to? Is it pride? That's a big one for a lot of us. It's a big one for me. Is it the need to feel recognized or to feel valued? What is keeping you from being able to fully and freely give what God is asking of you as an act of pure love? And notice I said what God is asking of you, not necessarily what people are asking of you. There can be a really big difference. And it's this type of self-examination that is part of the hard work of a Christ-centered community. The next aspect of Christ-centered love that I want to talk about is forgiveness. You know, in the words of the great theologian Jennifer Aniston, I'm kidding, Jennifer Aniston is, is like a pop culture actress, but I happened to catch an interview that she was doing one time on TV, and, and she was in the middle of like a big rift with her father. There was a, there was a deep sense of betrayal that, was, that took place, and, and she said three very true and very powerful words Forgiveness is hard. It's hard. But Jesus knew it was hard, and that's why he taught us how to intervene around that very topic. Forgive our sins as we forgive others. We are to pray for it and pray for the strength to do it. And forgiving doesn't mean that we ask for it or offer it without question or and automatically forget all the implications. I don't know if that's humanly possible or even responsible. But it is something we consciously work toward. No matter how hurt or angry, we are to seek unity of spirit. We seek and we pray for God's intervention to give us the grace and strength that we need to seek understanding and to forgive as Christ forgave. And to believe that it is within our grasp because Christ made it so. Yes, true forgiveness is a stretch. Christ-centered community. A community formed around the common ground of love of Christ, of the love of Christ that is categorized by truth and sacrifice and forgiveness. Friends, if we can find trusted common ground, uh, common ground to, uh, to, point, uh, to the point where our differences don't matter that much, if we can find that common ground around the New England Patriots or, or the Indianapolis Colts or, or the Purdue Boilermakers, I learned that one yesterday. Interesting mascot, by the way. Um, or, or quilting, or anime, or rock and roll, or whatever. How can we not around the love, the truth, the sacrifice, and the forgiveness of Christ? If Christ can delight in our individual differences and call them good, why then, when we share the common ground of who Christ is, do we choose to have such a hard time with those same differences. And I know, I know that it's a stretch to think that we're going to come together from all sides of the political and and ethical and cultural and racial and theological and socioeconomic spectrums to do mission and to be the church. But I think sometimes we choose to make that stretch longer and more painful than it needs to be. 
The thing is, we don't have to agree with one another on all things. We shouldn't if we are truly living into our God-given differences. We don't even have to like each other all the time. Isn't that a freeing thought? But we do have to love one another. We do have to sacrifice and listen to and forgive each other. And honestly, I think God is trying to tell us something big right now. You know, church big C and church little C. I, I think it has more to do with being than doing. I'm not sure. But I think he's trying to get our attention. And the question is, are we willing to do the hard work of being the church so that we truly can be united in mind and mission? Are, are we going to let ourselves be so distracted by our differences that we continue, as my colleague says, pass it by? Jesus, through his work on the cross, made it possible for us to do the necessary work to come together in unity. He intervenes on our behalf, praying that we might be united in Christ so that the world might believe. The stakes are high, folks. This isn't just about you and me. This is for the sake of the world. The world that God loves so much that he sent his son to die for it. And he asks us. He chooses us. Sometimes I question that decision, but he did. He entrusts us to do the hard work of being the church, to make the sacrifices, to love the love, to come together as a unified body to help bring heaven to earth for his glory and for the benefit of the world. And it's not easy, but it's beautiful. And it's what we're being called to. Please pray with me. Holy Jesus, so long ago, you prayed for us. You prayed uh, that we could do the hard work to be unified in you. And we confess, God, that that's not always easy. Lord God, would you help us? Would you help us to love the love, to do the work, to sacrifice for, to forgive one another? God, would you help us do that? We praise you, God. We thank you for loving us so much. And we love you back. We pray this in your holy and in your precious name. Amen.